0: Hello, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Isabel Lofgren.
0: Isabel, hi. It's lovely to have you here. I really appreciate it. It's exciting for me. And I've got my, in a sense, standard question, which is to ask you to share with us what at the moment is... Propelling you onwards, holding you back, dynamizing you, concerning you, interesting you.
1: Well, this um, just very recently, I just launched a book, co-edited anthology, about the January Eight Planalto riots in Brazil. Now, a lot of people might not know what January Eight is internationally, or they have heard about it. But, and also the name Planalto Riots is not as uh, well known in the media. But basically, uh, we did a book um, of three researchers and myself, Paula Sartoreto, Luca Femi, and Gisele Martins. We edited an anthology with several articles recounting um, the events that led, both led to, during, and a little bit after um, what happened in Brasilia on January 8th uh 2023 so um most so this uh, in fact the brazilian political situation i'm half brazilian and half swedish i live in sweden but i write very much about brazil even at a distance um i also write about sweden in some ways but somehow this um dual identity has led me to um See both countries both from a distant eye but also with a familiar eye mm. so so in many ways i 've been publishing over the years articles in English about uh, the Brazilian political situation, especially focusing on visual politics and aesthetics and what happens when things happen on the street, go to the screens and back again so i 've been working along. Um, It's been developing that way. And the last latest thing that I've published and co-published in this sense is this book called The Planalto Riots, The Making and Unmaking of a Failed State Coup*. So January 8th, 2023 is known international as sort of like the Brazilian version of the Capitol riots in 2021, right. because the dynamics, I mean, from an international perspective, because, of course, the United States always takes precedence in everybody's um, unconscious because it's, you know, they dominate the whole the media. So um, in the book, actually, we've been very careful to avoid com- direct comparisons between the Capitol riots. And the January 8th Plan Alto riots, even though they're very similar, you know, an, uh, an article doing this comparison has been written by other people and would have been very welcome, but we have chosen to perhaps, from a more decolonial perspective, not center it as the capital riots as a reference point. So, in this book, um, we, um, in mid 2022, just just to backtrack a little bit, um, Brazil has a democracy, has elections every four years, and the last presidential election happened in late 2022. And the elections happen in two rounds. There's the first round where there's a lot of candidates, and um, um, then two, then let's say the two that got the most votes. If there is no clear majority, the two contenders, those contenders go to a second round. So, of course, this gives, um, opens the margin to a lot of exciting campaign politics. And of course, in between the election, uh, the winner being declared in the second round until the, the elected president takes office, there's also a few months in between. So in this book, we try to cover the period from what happened right at the election up until uh the new president taking oath in this case uh, Jair Bolsonaro was defeated and Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva uh started his third mandate right he served two mandates in the 2010 in the 2000s from 2003 to 2010 and then he came back now and won this election and one week after Lula took uh, office on January 1st happened this Attempt to a state coup in Brasilia, orchestrated by uh, what we call Bolsonaristas, you know, the Bolsonaro supporters, which are very peculiar, have a very interesting dynamics and strategies, which is what we try to uncover in this book. And but in this, um, of course, I've been writing about things that were happening throughout the entire Bolsonaro period. I started. In 2018, I wrote an article about um, artistic resistance during the elections leading up to Bolsonaro's um, uh, election. You know, how artists mobilized on the streets and what kind of strategies they were using. And um, through these very, very um, convoluted, confusing, very, um, um, where the rhetorics were completely dominated by the Bolsonaro far right view of the world um i've been writing also about memes in the context of this kind of like media warfare this cultural war that um has been named as such you know that marks this period and then of course then at the end of this bolsonaro era then you know we thought it was over but no then happened this um attempt to a coup which failed so this is what we try to to illustrate um, through and analyze, of course, through symbolic actions, through a philosophical perspective, through looking at how the Bolsonaristas mobilized um, up to the state coup, which is a fascinating um, story, if not a fantastic work of fiction, if it wasn't true. You know, for me, it's pure surrealism. If you read our book, you'll notice this is surrealism. It's, it's It can't be true, right? And then, of course, then what happened during the coup, there was a lot of vandalism, you know, like public property was vandalized, um, government buildings were invaded. In this sense, similar to the Capitol riots, right, similar in form. But of course, there are symbolic, um, symbolic aspects that are, are quite distinct. And in this book, I particularly I wrote I co-wrote an article with a researcher from a university in southern Brazil, the Federal University of Santa Maria, Viviane Borel. and we wrote about a very curious episode that happened between the uh, declaration of that that Lula had won the election up until the coup itself, and there it was this meme which is called the Truck Patriot Meme, which was uh, Internet Sensation of the Year. So I've been very interested in meme cultures as well, because it's a kind of visual politics. Um, it's, a, let's say, a, a genre of visuality that um, has still a lot to be written about and theorized. I mean, there's a lot of theories from the early 2000s, you know, from the outset of the Internet, with YouTube and all that. But of course, with the far-right rhetorics, there has been a kind of, um, I would, not as an appropriation, but, you know, both the left and the right, they mean, right? So so this is a very interesting genre. And um, one reason why we chose to write about this meme specifically is because it's so absurd and so interesting, is that it was right after the election, uh, it was the meme that made Brazil laugh again, after four years of Bolsonaro, you know, of being hammered every day with you know this 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 rhetoric, the social media warfare, you know this promoting of worldviews that are misogynistic and you know shocking at one shock per day. Then something very curious happens that sort of tips over the balance to, um, let's say, the left or the anti-Bolsonaro supporters or the non-Bolsonaro supporters. That finally we had there was a a, um, a moment where um, there was an upper hand in the social media warfare. So and this is also very emblematic of what happened during this period. So what happened was the following bolsonaristas they basically appropriated the Brazilian uh, football team shirt, you know, the yellow and, and green uniform as their bolsonarista uniform, right? That means patriot. They would call themselves patriots. So wearing the national flag colors doing all these Bolsonaro years sin manifestations has become a hallmark of, of this movement, right? This far-round movement against what they say is the red color of the left, right? So there was a color a chromatic warfare happening, which is very, very distinctive, which, did, you know, even when you saw drone shots of manifestations, you could clearly see from the air what groups were forming where. Anyhow, um, right after the election results was announced, there was a massive um, road blockage. So all the truck drivers, well, not all, as we will see, not all, but most truck drivers in all of Brazil blocked roads. So they were highly organized, which is one of the articles describes this type of, you know, WhatsApp based uh, movement organization. They stopped, started, actually the blocking roads started already during the voting day, right? But anyway, this continued. And uh, these, uh, Bolsonaro supporters started creating, making camps, encampments along the roads, um, enti- encouraging other truck drivers and others to join the movement. And also supporters, Bolsonaro supporters started camping in front of military headquarters. And they did this for over two months, right? and doing kind of flash mobs and all sorts of, um, you know, mediatic displays. And what they claimed all the time is that a coup would happen in 72 hours. Oh, don't worry, you know, okay, Bolsonaro lost this, but in 72 hours, there will be a coup. So during these alleged 72 hours, they were waiting for military intervention to turn over the polls, because there's also the questioning of electoral results, the democratic process, that the election was rigged and they wanted to see that, you know, we have electronic voting, so they thought everything was hacked. So, I mean, it's so complex. But at one point, one of these supporters along the roads, right, there was one truck that broke through the blockade that didn't want to participate in the blockade. Out comes a supporter wearing um, wearing a yellow shirt and sort of clings to the front of a truck and the truck just starts driving with this guy clinging on the truck so this is immediately people started filming the driver filmed from inside people started filming from the road he drove for 10 kilometers um at reasonably high speed. well not fast enough that, that would it would probably was dangerous for this uh bolsonaro supporter to hang there in any case, this was very much filmed, and immediately this started circulating on Twitter, on Instagram, on all social media, and it became an instant meme. So this is this is uh, the article that I write about the phenomenon of the truck patriot. And when you look at when we analyze the you know the types of um, expressions of Brazilian humor, right, Brazilian everyday humor. Um, you know the truck patriot was seen, you know, riding to the moon, riding through Paris, riding through the whole <laughs> world. They did, you know, mashups of of the truck patriot hanging onto a Harry Potter um, car, flying car. I mean, you name it. It was an incredible onslaught of creativity, and it created a, a, a catharsis um, for people that finally, you know, they had something that was more that was so memeable that the Bolsonaristas couldn't really counter that in that speech, So it was very demoralizing for the Bolsonaristas, we could say. And it sort of, you know, tipped over the balance, at least in social media, for a while. In the meantime, of course, the January 8th failed coup attempt happened. So even though they were, at least say, these <laughs> meme movements, let's put it that way, uh, the the, the bolsonarista organizations in front of these encampments and I, I, I happened to be in Brazil in December 2020 I saw them myself it was incredible like how uh, my colleagues from my university were in a conference they were like what, what is it is this carnival or something is this a oh. costume party I'm like no <laughs> this, is, this, this is hardcore bolsonaristas protesting camping in front of headquarters waiting for their waiting for their military intervention to restore order So a very serious matter, which led to this um, failed coup attempt, which we we
0: describe. And one of the things about Bolsonaro was that he had been in the military. He had been in the Senate, although dramatically ineffective in the Senate, because he was too arrogant to bother to learn procedural rules and norms. So a bit like Donald J. Trump, when he became president, this leaves that sort of man without the expertise to run things whether you, whether they run them well or ill. And he also represented a tendency that was in favour of the 64 to 85 dictatorship that he looked at right. positively, which we're also getting with the current vice president of Argentina, uh, who may well become the next president, whose father was in the junta there. So it's interesting that these things that people of my generation remain haunted by mm, yeah. but think are over are not over. Just like here in Spain or in the United States, the two civil wars have never ended. It's quite obvious in the US the civil war never ended because Reconstruction was never completed. And here in Spain, good grief, uh, you go to Valencia to middle class neighborhoods and people have painted on the walls death to reds. I mean, it's really like something from a century ago. And... So I guess that's the first thing I wanted to say, and then I wanted to ask you a question, somewhat related to that. In addition to being a prof of media studies at uh, Sir Turn, you're also an artist and an artist activist, activist scholar, all those sorts of things. No, Are you uh, pulling a face when I say yes, that.
1: <laughs> yes, it's it's yes. I would I would say so. Yes, I do. I do. Um... I do write. I do do teach media activism. Actually, <laughs> that's that's quite true. But of course, um, I think I have my idea about uh, being an intellectual. If I may say that we are you, you are an intellectual, and perhaps because I work at the universe, I could perhaps call myself that in some, to some extent. I think that. Um, academia or producing knowledge is is part of a public capacity i mean for me it's about you know it's not something that's only for experts and it's it's also part of my history to you know have some kind of social engagement with with the work that i do um i don't know if it changes anything but i am very interested in the idea of you know organization for change and and both working with and writing about Collectives such as um, I also wrote a a few couple years ago during the pandemic, a chapter about a trans uh, organization in Sao Paulo that is working with artists as part of their um, hospitality work and um, uh, their work with trans rights. So, in a sense, and also um, in in regards to the Bolsonaro era, I've also written very much from a, a feminist perspective about certain mobilizations, and, and especially regarding the, the murder of, of city councillor Marielle Franco, a city councillor from Rio de Janeiro who was murdered on March 14th, 2018. This means before, during the, in, in the same year Bolsonaro was elected. And um, of course, none of these things are unrelated. Um, we could go very deeply into the history of Rio, which is my Rio de Janeiro, which is my hometown, and how these dynamics work. So, so in a sense, uh, and even before the Bolsonaro era, I've been doing um, artistic, let's say, art exhibitions um, that are very much collective, um, collective. Exhibitions with a lot of participants. I also work in partnership with an artist, Patrícia Gouveia, in in Brazil, and we've been looking at feminist issues relating to even the colonial legacies um, on the history of Brazilian women and especially Black women in um, in Rio in a very specific project called Black Mother or La Prieta in, in in Portuguese. So in a sense, from my perspective, it's all related, right? This is different outputs and different processes and different sorts of institutions, even different types of fundings, um, which may seem maybe for somebody from the outside, how does she put that all together? Well, for me, it's very clear cut. But of course, it's different arenas. But somehow they they, they touch on similar issues, which is um, focusing on social injustice and how What are the mobilizations for more social justice or racial justice or gender justice? So this has been sort of my focus. And of course, my more specific focus is in how art, aesthetics and visual culture play a part in these movements for change. So my specific, I have a background as a fine artist. This is what I studied. Um, In the beginning, I have a master's in fine art, but then I have a PhD in media philosophy which sort of puts that together in different... And this is how I ended up in communication. So, in fact, I write about communications without being formally a communications scholar. I can probably say after years of experience teaching that, I can say that I can self-declare myself that. But on paper, I'm actually an artist, if you look at my academic
0: background. And, and related to that, and going back to this issue of the bolsonaristas taking hold of social media at a certain point, I wanted to put this to you as a provocation that is something I'm not certain about but worry about, which is that if I think back to the Spanish Civil War, to porno chancharas as a kind of resistance to certain norms of a dictatorship, one way of interpreting the genre, to civil rights, uh, gospel music, in the United States, to gay liberation songs of the seventies, to the era of anthemic feminist music. And to a century of art that you you could take it back further, but let's think of Picasso and Guernica. Mm-hmm. But these domains, be they popular or vanguardist, have been the domain of the left, of progressives, be they concerned with Marxism, Republicanism, feminism, queer rights, whatever. And these bastards on the right have learnt what we did and appropriated from us and are masters of it. This is my anxiety. There used to be a line from Tom Lehrer, about the Civil War in Spain, which is they may have won the war, they may have won all the battles, but we had all the good songs. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And think about all the great poets, mm. photographers of war on the side of, to be to extent in any war we can speak in these ways, but the just mm. and the decent mm. and the thoughtful. Mm. Yeah. I am worried about this takeover by the right, that we can also see not just in terms of capital and <laughs> politics, or cultural politics, but in terms of corporate advertising as well.
1: Sure, sure, definitely. Um, so I yeah, wondered
0: about your your view of that. Am I right? Does it matter? Is there a contest? What's going on, do you think?
1: Yes, of course there is. I mean, there is, of course, uh, if you look at the situationists from the 60s, for example, right? Um, they came up with a range of strategies, uh, that were used then as a counter, I mean counter-cultural movement, it's a cultural resistance. Yeah, yeah. And which, you know, of course, which which was a form of critique of hegemonical structures, right? Guy Debord was, you know, the Society of Spectacle about, uh, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, everything, everything, <laughs> There's no social relations, there's only transactions, everything is mediated by a transaction. And then what is the response against that? You know, what are the artistic strategies that that become a critique against that? Um, you know, the takeover of the city with corporatization, and then you know, the idea that the vague terrain is found in those spaces in the city which are not um co-opted for profit or for um, and also from a class perspective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, they, they have a, a very long lineage, you know, even th- those traditions that go back to, uh, you know, Dadaist traditions, if you want to go that far back, which also respond to other things. So, so of course, the history of of cultural resistance, at least from a Western perspective, um, is a series of, you know, ruptures, continuities and ruptures, all the kind of rupture, you know, trying to both critique uh, the mainstream or the hegemonization of the, you know, the, the the hegemonic cultural codes, but also innovating in new forms and materials, right? And new audiences and publics and all that. And, and that I think is a continuous process. It, it's just how culture works in a sense. So, so even though we could say that the playbook of the leftist cultural may have been appropriated in part, by the far right, there is still um, quite a bit of room left for other innovations and other materials and other ways of communicating or advocating symbolically. The thing is that today, (laughs) these means by which cultural resistance is made is available to anyone, right? And of course, I think digitization has a part in this. For example, if you remember hacktivism, or the late 90s when, you know, the internet was still supposed to be free, or at least we thought so, that, you know, all these, you know, tactical media and all of this was very important, very exciting. This was what inspired me to get into all of this in the, in the way back when. But of course, tactical media in itself, you know, when soon from one perspective can be deployed for certain ends of change and critique, um, for um, you know, pertaining to a, a, a worldview which we consider democratic and open, open access, and you know information should be free, whereas today everything is subscription based, blah blah blah. However, when these far right movements um, settle in in this modern form, they they rescue very old propaganda tactics, right? So it, it that has to do with propaganda as well. It's not just art and culture, it's when, you know, propaganda tactics, which are very much conflated with art and culture, if you look at uh, Nazi Germany in the 30s and Lenin, Riefenstahl, et etc., et cetera, they are also conflated with cultural innovation, but from the other side, right? So, so of course, when these tactics, tactics are all available to learn about, and they are, dip- and when, you know, power shifts, it's In a way, this shift, it's not surprising that certain tactics are appropriated and used against those that supposedly created it and were supposed to deploy it. So, of course, it's left the left with what are we going to do now, right? So what happened, at least in the Bolsonaro years, is that the left took a defensive position. Whereas the right had an offensive position, they had the upper hand in the media. They dominated the media discourse. sort of their narratives dominated the media discourse, and also because they earned a lot of media power. So we can discuss, you know, for example, when I compare memes from the left and memes from the right in this article about um, uh, memes and uh, memes for solidarity or means from necropolitics in the case of the city council, Marielle Franco. So you see that the means, it still means, but the, the left means in one way, and the right means in another way, right? The aesthetics are different, uh, the narratives are different, and the purposes um, are for mobilization and change, uh, but the effects are very different, right? So, so in the far right, there is a tendency of, you know, the, okay, maybe the tactics may be similar, but the ends are very different, right? The far right has, you know, the purpose is to indoctrinate and uh, in a very destructive way. Of course, they don't see it that way, right? Whereas the left, when they, when the left means, um, it's to build solidarity, it's also to to build some kind of a common idea of what is going on. But somehow, even though the tools may be similar and the mediums may be similar, um, there is a difference in purpose and effects. So there's some kind of, a, I wouldn't say mismatch, but they start shooting in the air. And this creates this very strange uh, discomfort, which you which you describe, right? So in a sense, it's like it's two fronts fighting against each other, but they're aiming at very different things. And, and I think in this dissonance, is what produces, in, in this case, in what we have seen, and now that remains to be seen, of course, that um, when the far-right gathers enough media power, that narrative sort of wins, and then the left is left to react, and then what are the tools there, right? So uh, this is very you, well generally... Uh, we,
0: I think that's a brilliant description and analysis that helps me understand things a lot. One of the ironies here for me is that the left craps on all the time about the people and the voice of the people and we represent it and sovereignty doesn't function, but the street does. <clears throat> Except, of course, when it doesn't, when the street is full of bigots. And the right, which goes on and on and on about the police force and the military, until the right decides that it doesn't like law and order, it doesn't like the courts, it doesn't like checks and balances, it actually doesn't like democracy. And there, there is a strange rejection of their their pasts, uh, you know, that, that fascinates me, that is, I think, going on in many of these cases. And we're thinking about this a lot, of course, in Europe and Latin America, especially at the moment, because of the fact that the so-called populist left seems to be pretty much in retreat, and the populist right seems to be on the charge. And mm. you can see that in in many instances, and especially obviously in countries uh, like Sweden or Spain uh, or, or Mexico or Argentina that are not so beholden to an absolute bifurcation of political power in the way that the United States or Britain uh, are. So I, uh, I, these things are really up for grabs, but the Republican Party in the United States can no longer claim it is the party of law and order. It might be the party of the police and the military, but it's not the party of law and order. At all because of its yeah. taste for extrajudicial violence.
1: Right. And this is against I mean, these are these are discourses, right? I mean I mean in in, in Brazil, one the one thing that happened very interestingly is that between this law and order, I think that the, the Bolsonaristas were always saying, you know, military intervention, that's order. You know, and, and they <laughs> sort of yeah. drew, well, yeah, but in a country where you have military dictatorships and people's memories and people's lived experiences still, right? Yes. Uh, my mother was 17 when the 64 coup happened, so you know this is still very much something that's. Um, it was dormant. It's always been alive, but it was dormant during this uh, this period before Bolsonaro, or, or or in the years, or let's say between Dilma's Dilma Rousseff's the yes. parliamentary coup against Dilma Rousseff in 2016, if I'm not wrong now, please audience correct me, and then leading up the events to leading up to the, you know, the car wash corruption um, operation, as it was called, and then, uh, you know, Lula's imprisonment, uh, because, you know, due to those false accusations during that imbroglio, and then leading up to Bolsonaro's election in 2018. So, so in a sense, in that period, this this dormant, this dormant dormant uh, um, desire or nostalgia for dictatorship, which is order, right, yeah. um, came back. And Bolsonaro was very effective in that, right? He is. A, you were talking about Trump and Bolsonaro, and in fact, Bolsonaro is. They both consider him as underdogs in the political scene. But in fact bolsonaro is, was not a stranger to politics at all. He was very he's in fact, we can say he's not a good politician, but he had experience, right? He had been in the Senate, he had been uh, you know a politician in from Rio de Janeiro, even though he's from São Paulo, he's been a politician for the state of uh, Rio de Janeiro all his political life. And the fact is that he was a military who was ousted from the military for doing an internal coup inside the military that also didn't work. So, what happened when the military dictatorship in 1985 was dissolved, let's put it that way, because there was no coup back to democracy, it was sort of uh, a transition to democracy, is that parts of the military were dissatisfied with the loss of privileges. So, some military accepted that they have a civil function, but a small faction was very much against the loss of privileges and the, you know, the end of the military, uh, the military led rule. And one of those was Bolsonaro. So he tried to make an internal coup to protest against that, which didn't fail. So he was ousted from the military. So he's a former military that was actually, you know, (laughs) not welcome there. And that's why he started political life. So he started political life already in the 80s or early 90s. So he's an experienced politicians exactly
0: Good? no I mean, that, Good, we don't same. know but Please, so so in no. a
1: sense so in a sense you know we, we in brazil we have a term that's called the low clergy of the congress right there's a high clergy and then the low clergy and and bolsonaro was always this this uh, a bit comic absurd figure he would go on talk shows and say absurd things i mean this has all been recorded that this has all been played over and over again and um, so, you know, and then he resurges during the, the voting for the coup of Juma of, of Rousseff. He resurges saying, stating his vote, recalling, for example, torturers of, of the dictatorship. And of course, everybody knows that Juma Rousseff had been part of the resistance against the dictatorship in the late 60s, uh, 70s. And had been tortured. Yes, exactly. So, you know, this was really a blow below the belt that and but this sort of released unleashed a dormancy of this you know desire for for dictatorship which is it was there had been protests in brazil since 2013 since some years prior you know claiming so so this whole thing in brazil started actually 10 years ago not it was not just um um you know bolsonaro it was it started a bit before and there was a small faction of people who came out oh, of military dictatorship. In the beginning, in 2013, people were like, oh, were these, who are these lunatics? But they started expanding. These ideas started expanding because it, it, it was very simple, right? The message was very simple. When you talk about, oh, democracy for the people, it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated. People have to think a bit more, in right? What is democracy and all that? So of course this this far right you know very simplistic du- dualism about oh democracy this democracy is very corrupt therefore what is the best uh, what what works oh the military have law and order so we go for that so of course i'm simplifying but somehow the narrative the narrative goes goes in some ways goes goes that way and it was interesting to observe through the years how this you know people who were adamantly against or, or you know, for Dilma Rousseff's um, uh, impeachment, then when Bolsonaro comes, they become anti-Bolsonaro. You know, there are all these people who were in between or the opposite. They were super anti-Dilma and were super pro-Bolsonaro. So, so there was a, a confusion uh, between sort of political um, allegiance. You know, what is the future? You know, what is what does stability mean? What is and, of course, this nationalism came, right? Oh, the nation, the patriot and all that. And so that's, that's a, the, the far-right playbook um, through and through. So, so it's <laughs> this, and in, in Brazil, of course, is super complex to explain um, to, to uh, an audience who's not familiar with Brazil. But, you know, Brazil is, is a, a solid democracy, we could say, institutionally speaking. So what happened back to this left and right and who's, who lost power, who gained power and all of that. Mm-hmm. One very in- interesting thing that happened during the, 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 in the, for the, before the Bolsonaro election, I mean, the people who were supporting the leftist, leftist candidate, candidate Fernando Haddad from the Workers' Party, who was Lula's uh, nominee, because Lula couldn't run for office in that election. So what happened with this, you know, law and order and who who has the who who has the the reason, right? The raison, um, who has the rationality for a vision of the future. What happened is that a lot of influencers on the left started um doing posts about the constitution. Right. Oh, this is how the Constitution works. This article is this, this article is that and this is that. So in a sense, when the democracy was in the most fragile and questioned, at the same time, people suddenly became aware of democracy. Oh, okay. there's the what is democracy? Now, do you know what a democracy is? And then a lot of influencers up and down, you know, both both serious journalists, but also, you know, drag queen um, influencers. You know, they started doing a kind of a political education through social media which is very very interesting to observe so you know what is the in, a, in a, um, public campaigns or and and ad hoc artists also you know creating street posters and doing you know videos and all that stuff so it was an interesting awakening as well as to what is this democracy and when they when the far right people say the article constitution article this and that and that Okay. Do you guys know what it means? So, so in a, in a sense, it was very pedagogical for those who were paying attention that, and and this I find if you thought, what is, what, what is the left to do? I think that this is what the left should do, you know, to, okay, let's go back to the basics. What is this democracy? What are the grounds? You know, do you even know how the, how the Congress works? So when the far right says that, um, the, the, the electoral court has faked this and this, they're not correct because the constitution says something completely different, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so in a sense, the the left, in its let's say, reactive position, also took on a pedagogical role to to its best to the best of its ability, from you know gra- a grassroots perspective, to take on this more pedagogical function in order to empower people to make better choices, right? To understand what is the manipulation. And of course, in a country as vast as Brazil, the continental proportions where, you know, not everybody reads the main newspapers, which are focused on the large cities. And even there, it's a small fraction. So, and you have everyone using WhatsApp. So people, you know, how do people get news? How do people learn about facts? They learn through social media. They learn through their uncles and aunts and the family and all that. So how do you, so, so. Understanding misinformation and disinformation is super, super important. And in our book, we actually have a couple of articles only about that. Right. About
0: that. Yeah. Prof, I have, I have one more question for you and then I'd like to throw it over to you if there are things you want to subtract from what you've said or or that we've said or add there to. Does that sound all right? Mm-hmm. OK, so one of the other big themes in your work is migration and This cuts through in part, I guess, your own biography. So I wondered if it's really a two-part question. You could tell us some of your concerns about the philosophy of migration, but also perhaps how that intersects with your own split experience, let's say. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. uh, Okay. So, So one of my... Concerns, or less something I try to think about is, you know, the the other basically. You know, what is the place of the other? What is the voice of the other? Uh, so, so in in, uh, in I'm, I'll make a shift from Brazil to Sweden, but it's just just to say that in when I write about Brazil, I'm writing about um, collectives and movements that are not hegemonic, right? So, how do people mobilize from the streets to the screens and all that or awesome? Um, feminist perspectives, or in my artistic work uh, looking at the social history of black motherhood in in brazil which is uh, which is a very interesting topic um, of course very problematic i 'm a white woman also researching these things, but in a sense, I feel that um, these are issues that uh, we all need to to tackle as as part of what does it mean to be a Brazilian citizen or, or say that, or, or what does it mean to be a Brazilian in general, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the concern of the other is also a way for me to work on my own dilemmas, right? Because if I have a dilemma, maybe other people have it as well. That's the, that's the very basic starting point. But it's very important, I think, to analyze one's own position by looking at other positions. You know? So always to keep, it, keep that in check. So one thing that I've, um, I I cannot say that I am a migrant in Sweden, nor am I a migrant in Brazil, because I'm dual nationality. So in a sense, I am not, um, but I do come from immigrant background in Brazil, like every other Brazilian has an immigrant, (laughs) some diaspora, either African or or European or a mixture thereof, um, etc, etc. Of course, the indigenous people of Brazil are the origin, the originary peoples. But even there, there are migrations. So, in a sense, we are all results of migrations of some sort, either either in our own lived experiences or in the constitutions of of our own backgrounds and families. But, however, what I'm also, I'm always I'm very interested in the notion of transit. And, um, and I'm sorry, the notion of transit, right? Transit. Sorry. Yes. Yes. How do you, sorry, how yes, how yes, do you transit from one identity to another? Yes. Yes. Um, and when. I'm writing about trans collectives, you know, from one gender to another, right? Um, from one nationality to another, from one context to another. What happens in this in this space? I, I can say personally that I'm a bit of an what we say in Swedish an in 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 betweenness. I'm neither this nor that, but I am this and that. And this notion that it's possible to be two things or three things at the same time seems to be very complicated. It shouldn't be. It should be more, it's actually more the norm than not. But of course, our brains and our countries and our legal systems and identification systems sort of oblige us to sort of fall for one or another. There is not that much space to be several, right? So when I moved to Sweden uh, about... 12, 13 years ago, I came here actually to do my PhD fieldwork. And I was interested in this duality that I had. You know, I'm Brazilian, but not entirely. I'm Swedish. I have no idea what Sweden is because I've never lived here. So I decided to um, do, you know, artistic research and media research in suburbs around Stockholm and suburbs where 95% of people living in the suburbs were not Swedish, where everything else but Ethnic Swedes. However, half of those people were already born in Sweden, which made them Swedes, right? But they are not considered Swedes culturally because they have parents from another country, which is also not a European country. So you see, so it's very complex. So I was so so my research sort of went into sort of untangling or it was simply mapping out this web of diasporas, as we can say that come to sweden uh, mm. because immigration to sweden is very much marked by diasporas yes there are individuals who marry a sweden come move here sure these are the ex-patriots but um, as a result of several diasporas coming from wars and religious persecution and etc from all parts of the world um, you can actually find this this cartography of, of diaspora in a city like stockholm and that was fascinating to me because then you know I said like, okay we're we're in the same mess in a way, but of course, I come from a, a privileged position that I'm not a migrant and I'm not a seeking asylum and anything. In any case, so so, but what I so I wanted to understand that relationship of actually of belonging. What makes someone belong to a place? What are the yeah. terms of belonging? Right. There's a cultural belonging. There's a, a legal belonging. There is a language belonging. There is a filial belonging. There's many dimensions to belonging. So I did an artistic project centering on satellite television because I noticed that a lot of immigrant families had satellite dishes hanging outside their balconies in these estates, which are social housing estates from the 70s. So a very brutalist, functionalist architecture. You know, very concrete, and then you have these dots on the facade. And what they, what those elements do in, in terms of media, uh, more media studies uh, thinking, is that they are, you know, transmitting uh, um, broadcasts from the homeland to the Swedish home, to the hearth of their apartment in Sweden. So the screen, or let's say the whole apparatus of television, the transnational television apparatus is a place of belonging in and of itself, not only a medium, but it is the place. So this is where these, through the television broadcast, seen in the living room in a very large screen, right, the centerpiece in the living room, this is where that space of belonging and identity plays out. So this is what I wanted to to, um, research and understand through this device. Let's put it that way, right? Um, and what happened is that, uh, if you talk about theory and practice, is that I did a practical, let's say, art project in order to um, get my participants You know, in the project. I basically colored their satellite dish, so it became a street white installation on the facades. But with that, I sort of negotiated an, an interview or a house visit to each of these families for an interview, which we could call a more ethnographic. And what I noticed when I was received by these families in their apartments was an enormous uh, um, uh, generosity and hospitality. I was a total stranger coming in. Hi, you know, can I use your antenna kind of thing? And in a sense, um, this, what happens when you, you begin with theory and then you do a practical project as a research device, and, and, and then what happens to theory afterwards, of course, you don't end up with the same theory you were there before. So this was a case where I, which I call like theory after practice, you know, when I noticed what was actually happening, happening relationally with, you know, families from all different parts of the world receiving me in very different ways. Right. The, the norms of each culture, you know, you should take your shoes off, not take your shoes off, sit down, not sit down. The coffee is different and all that. So, of course, it was a very interesting and and heartwarming Experience So in a sense, my entire research became about the philosophy of hospitality, which is about how do you welcome the other in your house, right? Or if you're a host and how are you, do you behave as a guest? So this was an, a fantastic framework to understand these relations, both in the micro level of hi, hello, knock on your door, just a greeting, but also how you know nations and nationalism plays with this notion of hospitality so in a sense uh, what i wanted to do with that research was to develop a vocabulary of hospitality in order to understand these incredible tensions that have to do with migration and the fear of the other right xenophobia Zin- xenos right friend the fear of the, f- the fear of the stranger And so on and so forth, which undercuts a lot of this. For example, the far right discourses, right? They're based on a fear of the other. So they want to make everyone the same, right? The far right, as you know, you're welcome. It doesn't matter your race as long as you believe in this narrative. Come on in, right? So, and it's it's of course there's a white supremacism in the far right movement, but there are also people of color who also embrace far- right ideologies and a very a, I, I wouldn't say about statistics but but what I'm trying to say is that um there there is a play on the fear of the other either the other that is very different ethnically racially etc or the other that thinks differently that doesn't believe in your ideology so so there is this very um problematic um i find that a lot of the roots of the of the far right movement are basically on um, you know the, who is the other right the other the woman is the other right? the 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 colored person is the other, etc cetera, etc cetera. whereas um from a feminist perspective it's always in defense of the other in defense of otherness in most feminisms at least so in a sense so this is sort of what i've been been working with and um and this going back to me this was a way to sort out or to resolve a dilemma that it was okay to be of two different nations they don't have to compete with each other that there is instead of a or they have to choose That there is an and and there is a a relief in that that yeah I can be an artist and a media scholar I can be Brazilian and swedish and maybe I can even be something else that's unrelated and I think and or you know if you think of academic disciplines why should we stick to one thing where there could be a combination right so the and the big insight was instead of or and so sometimes the insights are of of Is that preposition yeah prepositions Mm
0: -hmm. Prof Isabel we've got three or four minutes left and in that time I'd like to invite you as I said to add to what we've already discussed. If there are things we've missed or things where I've said something stupid like porno chantadas were resistive or whatever it might be.
1: I honestly don't know what you were referring to because in Brazil that would sort of opened uh, a channel. <laughs> so so I will I I will not add to that. I w I don't I don't know how to 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 do that. But I wanted to add something else which is about um a sort of um what I notice in the sort of a, a strength in the Brazilian culture is the notion of syncretism where, you know, where you can, for example, when the enslaved were forced, converted, they appeared to um, worship the Catholic saints. But in fact, the Catholic saints behind them was an African deity with similar attributes. So in a sense, there is embedded in the Brazilian culture, which I've noticed in very many um, um, social movements, that there is this syncretic capacity of, of invention, of appropriating things that come from an oppressor or hegemonic system and turning them upside down and twisting them and creating a new meaning. And I think that this, this notion of transit that I was talking about sort of refers to that as well as that. Meanings circulate and they change and transform. And depending on how they are performed, they can have they can take different shapes and have different effects and meanings for for both for who produces it and those those who who receive it.
0: Beautifully put, and I think that is a remarkable quality. So thank you, Prof. It's been wonderful chatting to you. I always learn a lot from reading your work and looking at it. And I feel as though I've gotten a much more profound understanding, especially of Brazil, than I had before um, today. And, in fact, as you mentioned when we were discussing before we went on air, in the last 24 hours I've had the privilege of recording conversations with you and Mauro Porto. And so my knowledge of Brazil has, Mm. has increased massively.
1: So it was wonderful
0: chatting to you, and I think your insights into left-right dynamics and intercultural politics are astoundingly profound and provocative. So many, many thanks.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity.